Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, conversations about sexual and domestic violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Katherine Harlow, Domestic and Sexual Violence Counselor for Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, also known as DSVS, and Jennifer Hannett, psychotherapist with Gill Institute for Trauma and Recovery Education and adjunct professor with Simmons University and Catholic University Schools of Social Work about showing up to do the work when the work is really difficult. Catherine, Jen, thanks for being here on Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. About a year ago, I fielded an email from a woman who had a horrific story of violence she'd suffered at the hands of her husband. She'd fled to stay with relatives in Fairfax County and was seeking services here. After hearing her story, I forwarded it to the corrected people in domestic and sexual violence services. And I thought about that woman the entire day. That same evening, DSVS hosted a documentary screening of Crime After Crime, followed by a panel discussion. I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary, but it's about a woman who was convicted of hiring someone to murder her ex-husband who had harmed her for years. Technically, someone she knew murdered him. She'd only asked them to scare him. But she ended up doing hard prison time. Attorneys picked up her case pro bono and tried for years to get her conviction overturned. She was finally released for compassionate reasons after she was diagnosed with cancer, but she didn't live long after release. Those two events on the same day had me tore up from the floor up. I cried most of the night, and I thought, I am so glad I don't do this work on a regular basis. And also, how do the people who do do this work on a regular basis keep it together, continue doing it? Which brings us to today's discussion. Catherine, I'm coming to you first. Why do you do this work? And I really like that question because I think that's what keeps me grounded in the how do I keep doing this work is my why for doing it. Trauma is something as you've seen from this documentary, Kendra, and from working so closely with DSVS is something that's really common and pervasive in our society, our culture. It's a big part of being a human, but so is healing and being able to connect with other people and have positive growth experiences. And the why I do this work is because I want to help people find that healing. And every day that people show up for themselves, I get to see and be a part of that process, which is really, really powerful to watch people, you know, dig into their inner strength, dig into their inner resilience and build the life that they want for themselves, despite all the horrible stuff that they've experienced. Jen, same question. Why do you do this work? Wow. Well, for a lot of similar reasons. Um, but um, I think of trauma as um, kind of like a path where you can get stuck, right? Like I think of trauma as um, stuck spots. And if I could be a part of that person or that group's healing process to help um, help them to help themselves um, through those stuck spots, then it is just incredibly um, rewarding and also um, just such a meaningful and uh, feel so honored to be a part of their process, you know, to see, to be a witness to their healing, to be a witness to their growth. Um, and also um, coming from experiences, um, myself experiencing trauma as a child, um, uh, secondary trauma, uh, working 
at uh, Child Protective Services, my first job out of school. Um, it really, those experiences also informed um, and really um, brought me to where I am now in wanting to help others um, through that. And we are, we cannot be affected by um, these experiences when we help others through this trauma. So helping the helpers, like I have um, such passion for helping the helpers as well. Okay, understood. We've been hearing anecdotally that interpersonal violence has become more severe and intense over the past three years. I don't know if that's because of COVID or if it would have happened anyway, but how do you keep showing up for survivors and victims, especially when the violence is severe or the case is particularly difficult? Catherine, I'll come to you. I think a lot of it is some of the stuff we've already discussed that I can be, I can offer a safe space for a person that may not have a lot of other safe spaces in their life. So them coming to counseling is a space where um, the violence, we might talk about it, um, things that we discuss might trigger feelings of that violence, but that violence is not going to occur in this space. And I also have the opportunity to help them decide how they want to move forward when things are really difficult and things are really tough. We can offer them resources for safety planning and help get them connected with more of the logistical stuff that mm -hmm. might actually help with their physical safety or resources they need to get themselves to a safer space or pull themselves out of that violence, but also helping them take some autonomy and making the choice that's really right for them. And that can be really important for these survivors and really powerful because if they do have support systems that they're able to talk to about what's going on, a lot of times those support systems have a lot of their own opinions and want to fix things and, you know, have certain ideas for how things are supposed to go, which is not always helpful. So I get to kind of take that step back because as a clinician, I care and, you know, I have deep compassion and empathy for the clients I work with, but I'm not their sister. I'm not their mother. I'm not their best friend. I'm not coming in with all of my preconceived notions of what that relationship is or should be or how they can fix it. So the space can really be theirs and help empower them. Thanks, Catherine. Jen, how do you not get overwhelmed? How do you avoid burnout? Oh, my. Well, and I have to say, I have experienced burnout. <laughs> and I experienced uh, finding my way through it. And um, and I am still here. Um, doing this work. Uh, and I've been doing this work for 23 years. Um, so, um, wow. So I think that, yes, this work becomes so heavy. Um, and I, you know, I think of, um, I think of uh, The Body Keeps the Score, um, the book by Bessel van der Kolk, how, you know, we hold uh, stress and trauma in our bodies. And our, you know, our clients do too. But when we work so closely with people who've experienced trauma, you know, you can feel it too. We can feel it too. We're all impacted by one another. And so, um, ha so after a while, it, 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 it accumulates, right? Like it, it can feel so heavy and it can feel so exhausting. So, um, I like to think of the analogy of a sponge. Like I think of, um, uh, checking in with myself, um, noticing, oh my gosh, am I saturated? Um, how saturated am I? And I think of the analogy of I need to wring it out. 
So uh, by wringing out the sponge, that being um, noticing how I'm feeling, checking in with myself and um, feeling it and allowing it to let go. And so these are all the things I teach my clients, right? So I really um, have to practice what I preach. <laughs> so that is how I deal with it is, is through remembering that I need to engage in self-care. I need to let it go. I need to recognize when I need a break and I need to recognize when I need more balance in my life. Um, so it really is a matter of kind of keeping that, um, oh, I love, I, I'm sorry, I love analogies. So I'm going to throw another one into this. Those are perfect. <laughs> so I, I think of like, um, a cup of water, right? And so you need, your cup needs to be filled or at least have some water in it in order to pour into the other person. So, I think of that as that, that wringing of the, um, sponge, um, or that engaging of the things that fill me up as kind of filling up my cup so that I can be there for others and I can keep doing the work. Any particular cases that still stick with you that you can share without sharing details, of course, that, that were particularly stressing, traumatic for you, but you still had to be there and support your client. Jen? Yeah. Um, and I can think back to 23 years ago. <laughs> Still is very clear, um, actually, several of those cases. And so it is amazing how these stories and these, these memories really can stay with you um, and inform the work that you do moving forward. Um, so this, this case in particular, it was, um, I was pretty, I was 21 when I started working at Child Protective Services in the state of Pennsylvania, in that state. At that time, you didn't need a master's degree. You, you didn't really need experience. They were desperate for anybody. And so, um, I, where I was living anyway. And so I, um, I was in this process of, you know, removing these three kids from their home. And it was, it was a scary situation, you know, threatened. Um, by the, the father with a gun, um, and me, uh, without, you know, any support, uh, you know, mm -hmm. removing these children, <laughs> um, and see, and really seeing the trauma that they experienced through that process. Did they need to be removed at the time because of safety reasons? Absolutely. But was it traumatic? Absolutely. And did I feel it too? Absolutely. So it's, you know, these memories that, you know, can kind of, can stay with you all these years. And I do think about them. I, I think I, I wish them well. I hope that they're doing okay. Catherine, what about you? Any stories you have that you can share that stick with you? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of the things that stick with me, I mean, there's obviously a lot of particular clients I've had, like Jennifer was talking about ones where safety and risk is really, really high. And we are scrambling to try and do what is right to keep the folks that we work with in a safe space so they can do the work to heal in the future. And that can be really, really difficult. And that always sticks. I would say more recently, I've been noticing some things that stick are when I work with the survivors of sexual trauma that are going through the legal system. And we know with a lot of the data supports that a lot of sexual assaults and rapes don't result in a conviction. And that going through that legal system is so re-traumatizing and it can be really difficult to watch folks that want this to be part of their healing process so that they can get some justice, they can get some closure, but that the system's not just set up to 
allow that. And then the work becomes, how do we heal without that? And and it is tough because we have to sit. And I find myself sitting with these folks and having to acknowledge that there is a lack of fairness and that that's something that I don't have the power to change and fix right now. Um, and that can be really difficult. So what do you say to them besides that, besides the, mm-hmm. I've done the best I can do. I've given you the help mm-hmm. I can give you, but the system isn't always fair or set up in a way that you can get the justice that you're seeking. Mm -hmm. How do you help them? What do you say after that? So I always start with validating that I understand that it sucks and that I'm disappointed too. And acknowledging that I too am a person and that they might be feeling stuck because of this barrier. And that Mm -hmm. I also often feel stuck by that particular barrier. And then helping them identify and trying to figure out what are other avenues for you to heal. Like, what are other things that could potentially, and not diminishing that that one avenue was really important to them and really making it clear that I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. Uh-huh. But since we don't live in a perfect world, what are the other ways that we can heal? I also often recommend support groups for people in that situation because it's something I hear a lot about. We talk a lot about in the support groups. I run many of the Um, People that join my support groups have had a similar experience. So just hearing that it's difficult for everyone and meeting other people who have felt stuck um, or belittled or minimized in similar ways can be really healing for the survivors I work with. Okay. And besides support groups, what other ways do you tell them that are paths to healing? So that is very individual for Mm. different people, but Mm -hmm. we do a lot of the things that we would do with any clients, even with, you know, my clients that maybe aren't going through the legal system, but make like increasing the coping, increasing healthy support networks, finding ways that they can maybe advocate for themselves and other survivors when they get to that healing place. So they might not have gotten to maybe tell their story in court and be heard in that way, like they want to but they might be able to come to a volunteer event in the future. Or they might be able to write a blog post mm. or when they're in a space where it wouldn't be too triggering, they could do something like volunteer for an organization like RAIN or DSVS so that they can connect and have their voice be heard one day when it feels like it's going to be safe for them to do so. So just helping encourage that there's other ways for this story to be told, other ways for you to be heard, and that people are out there listening. Okay. I often also like to acknowledge that I've heard many stories where people either can't go to court or things don't go well in court, but they're told by detectives, they're told by judges that like, I believe you and I believe this happened. The problem is that we don't have like the evidence to convict. So even just hearing that a lack of conviction is not the same thing as a lack of being heard and believed. Okay, that's good to hear. That's good to know. I imagine, though, both of you have to decompress from this work. Is that something you do on a daily basis, or do you have some sort of decompression ritual that you perform monthly or weekly? Or how, what do you guys do to decompress? Jen, let's hear from you. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, um, all of the above. <laughs> um, so I, I ask myself each day, okay, what is one thing I can do to help me? Um, you know, whether it's um, going for a walk outside or whether it's calling a friend that I haven't talked to in a while, 
um, what is one thing that um, I can do that brings me joy? Um, and it's so, um, you know, it gets so busy. So it's like, you kind of have to plan it in. You know, I have to schedule these things in and make sure that I do them. Um, I also, um, try to do one thing each month that is, um, you know, a form of self care. So, um, whether it's, um, uh, kind of like, uh, whether it's a massage or whether it's, uh, something new that I've been wanting to try, um, so I, I basically start with, um, what do I enjoy? <laughs> you know, I start with what fills me up and that changes. Um, so I just continue to check in with myself on these things. What am I needing? Um, but yes, I feel like in doing this work that is not just like a luxury, but it's really a necessity. And Catherine, what about you? How do you decompress? I, and I agree with everything Jennifer says. It is definitely a necessity. I feel like doing this work, particularly if you have the passion and desire to do it long term, it, it's a non-negotiable. Learning to decompress, taking care of yourself. It's not something that you can forget to do. Um, and that decompression is happening all the time. I, I work little things into my day. So even things like I might have a day where I work with five to seven clients, but like, I know I should not book seven people back to back mm -hmm. because that means that the seventh person is not getting the same version of myself that the per first person. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like I need time to have a snack. I need time to breathe. I need time to walk up and down the hallway to get a little bit of movement. So even those little moments of decompression throughout the day to kind of recenter myself and acknowledge and admit that I'm a person first and I'm a counselor second. So I need those moments too. I do do a lot of the things I recommend to my clients as my forms of both preventative um, and responsive self-care and decompression. Mm -hmm. So I like to exercise and I make sure to dedicate time to that every week. I'm really big on like my sleep hygiene. So like no screens right before bed. I read a good old fashioned book instead so I can get some quality sleep. I'm fortunate to be somebody that has a lot of interests and hobbies. So my new one recently has been weaving. Oh, wow. Like on, cool. like on a, on a, on a frame loom has been like the new thing that I'm doing to decompress between sessions and at the end of the night, because it's creative, but it's also really tactile and there's some movement to it. And I think uh, Jennifer mentioned the body keeps scorebook. Mm-hmm. So I also, I do like things that are physical to let me discharge some of the physical um, energy and things that I'm absorbing throughout the day. What suggestions do you have for someone just entering the field to manage this, to deal with this so that they aren't burnt out and overwhelmed and can best support their clients? Jen, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, helping them to understand that, um, this work will bring up really strong feelings. You know, this, this work can be very triggering, um, is very triggering. Um, and so I think for starters, um, you know, for new, new workers to know that they need to, um, to create and maintain balance in their lives. Um, that they, they need to reinforce their support network. Um, and that they need to continue to work on self care. Catherine, I imagine you have some similar ones, but do you have anything else that you would 
recommend to someone just getting started in this work? And this is something I talk with the interns that I supervise when I have interns a lot. And the word Jennifer used balance is a big one that I bring up all the time, which is finding that work-life balance, acknowledging you can't be everything to everyone and available all the time. Um, That is not going to be healthy and you need to find times to turn your work self off so you can take care of yourself. So I really recommend setting those boundaries. And that doesn't mean that you're leaving the clients that you you care about and you want to nurture and care for and support. You're not leaving them high and dry, Mm -hmm. but you're letting them know when you're available and when you're not. Mm -hmm. You're making sure they have the resources they need. So hotlines, other support systems, who they can reach out to if they can't reach you and turn your phone off on the weekend. Um, Don't go on vacation and check email, like let yourself separate. And it's really hard to do, particularly in the beginning. When you're brand new in the field, you want to be a superhero and you want to be everything to everyone, but not shutting some of that off and allowing yourself time and space is going to cause that burnout to to creep up on you much quicker. Clearly, I need to come talk to you guys. I need work-life balance. I do not know how to achieve that. And I don't do this work. (laughs) So we all need balance is what you're saying. We all do. do. (laughs) Yes. And if you don't have it, you notice the impacts of that. And that comes from when I was a young clinician and an intern, I didn't have that work-life balance. And I was like, both literally and emotionally taking the work home with me every day. And I was sick. I had a cold for like a year and a half. Oh, wow. Like my body was telling me that it was too much. And until I started listening and doing what I needed to do, like it didn't go away that that body response. Okay. Yeah. And Catherine, I had a similar experience when I was new in the field. And and back then, there wasn't as much known about self-care or about secondary trauma. Um, so I feel like uh, the field has come a long way in the past 20 years, especially. Um, but there is still more work that needs to be done in terms of educating people about, um, about what that is, what that feels like. I didn't even recognize that I had, ex- that I was experiencing secondary trauma and burnout until after I was gone. So I, I love how you said that, um, Catherine. You said it creeps up on you. And yes, that, that is how it can be. So being aware, um, of what that can look like and, um, and doing what you can to address it before, <laughs> you know, before you get to that point where you're like, Oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And, and leaning on that support system to make it okay. So having like a peer support group within the field, whether it's within your agency, if you're fortunate, like I at DSBS, I'm fortunate that um, our counseling team is a really good peer support network. But if you don't have that, so if you're working in private practice, find that because it can be really beneficial to have other clinicians that understand why this work is hard um, and why it's important to be able to talk about these things and normalize them so that we can heal from them. And then we can not only be healthier for ourselves, but we can be healthier for those that we serve. So I've watched too much television. I thought it was mandatory for counselors and therapists to see someone else in the field to decompress, to talk about how best to handle what you're feeling, what you're experiencing as you help other people. Am I wrong? Or is that just a TV thing? 
supervision is mandatory when you're new in the field and often ongoing supervision is mandatory for uh, like agencies and doing the work. I wonder if you're thinking that therapy is mandatory for therapists, which it's not, but I do highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. And I I have to second what Catherine says. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So where do professionals go to find these resources if you don't work in an agency? What's somewhere you would suggest, Catherine? Word of mouth. So like if you go to school, so I have joined supervision groups in the past just by asking people that I went to grad school with in this area, like, hey, where are you getting your supervision group from? Contacting sometimes the like local like colleges that have counseling programs and master's programs might know social media, like following practices, therapy practices in the area and figuring out do they do supervision groups? Um, But I would say it's a lot of word of mouth of just asking people, where are you getting this supervision? Or start one yourself. I mean, that's not something I've done. But if you can't find one, find the clinicians in your area and start one. And Jen, I imagine that's part of what the Gill Institute does, correct? Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, Yes, we do that. Um, So and I I work with um, I work with quite a lot of adults. Um, you know, the Gill Institute, um, people think of the Gill Institute as just working with children and families, but, um, we specialize in trauma treatment and we work with individuals of all ages. So, um, yes, uh, and Gill Institute is one of many places, right? Um, so word of mouth in terms of finding the right, um, therapist, trying out different therapists, um, yeah, maybe starting with your insurance because it is very expensive. But needed. So, on that note, we're we're going to start to wrap things up. But the men you mentioned the expensive, Catherine. DSVS services, counseling therapy services are free. Correct. Correct. Yes, we provide free short term services for survivors and secondary survivors. So it can be really anybody who's impacted by sexual violence, domestic violence, um, interpersonal violence, stalking, or human trafficking. Okay. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Catherine Harlow and Jen Hannett for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcast. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government.